Hello, and welcome to The Search. I'm Shahe Jurgen. We've come to a difficult passage in our study of 1 Corinthians. It's difficult not so much in its interpretation, although there are some challenges there, but mostly difficult in its application, knowing how this passage applies to our modern situations and church settings today. This is Lesson 7 in our series. We're going to be covering 1 Corinthians 5, and the title of our study is Expel the Wicked Person. Now, 1 Corinthians 5 marks a sectional transition in the book. The first four chapters were dedicated to the battle against division and its consequences. The sectarian spirit that pervaded the church at Corinth was reported to Paul by those of Chloe's household. In addition to that, they also told him about the issues that are going to be covered in chapters 5 and 6. When we get to chapter 6, we'll notice that Paul is confronting the Corinthian tendencies to uh, take one another to court in matters of personal conflict. He's going to berate them for their absurd view of sexual immorality, along with some other ancillary issues. The rest of the letter, once we get to chapter 7, all the way through chapter 16, is Paul's response to a series of questions and issues that were raised to him by a letter the Corinthians had sent to him. But before we get to any of those important topics, Paul is going to address what may have been the most serious moral crisis that was facing the congregation. 1 Corinthians 5 is designed to answer this question. What should Christians do if a child of God is living like a child of the devil? It's going to be all about the discipline of unruly and unrepentant church members. So let's first consider what the crisis was. What was the actual situation besetting the Corinthian congregation? We read about it in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 1 when Paul says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate, a man is sleeping with his father's wife. Now, Paul had learned about this deplorable crisis that shook the very moral foundation of the Corinthian congregation, again, probably from Chloe's people. The wickedness is first described by Paul as sexual immorality, or the old King James says fornication. And this comes from a Greek word, porneia, Porneia appears over 50 times in the New Testament. It's often included in sin lists, these kind of lists of condemned practices that Paul writes in Romans 1, Galatians 5, Ephesians 5, and in other places. It's difficult to define porneia without being overly coarse. The word can cover a, a variety of lascivious acts, including any unlawful sexual activity. The writer of Hebrews provides probably what could be considered a helpful description of porneia when he says, let marriage be held in honor by all and let the marriage bed be kept undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers, Hebrews 13 and verse 4. This seems to imply that fornication would include any sexual activity outside of the God-ordained union of marriage. Fornication was fairly common and accepted in the Roman world. As Gordon Fee writes, this is why porneia appears so often as the first item in the New Testament vice list, not because Christians were sexually hung up, nor because they considered this the primary sin, the scarlet letter, as it were. It's the result of the prevalence in the culture 
and the difficulty the early church experienced with its Gentile converts breaking with their former ways, which they did not consider immoral. At Corinth, the likely scenario is that a member of the congregation was maintaining an ongoing, intimate relationship with his stepmother, who is probably not a Christian, which is why she's probably not named or addressed directly. Now, Paul pointed out that such a practice was not merely a violation of the moral code of the Old Testament, the Torah, like in Leviticus 18, verses 7 through 8, but this kind of behavior was not even tolerated by pagan standards. The Corinthian society itself would have frowned upon this level of immorality. So, we see now the crisis, and in the next verse, Paul is going to move on swiftly to the condemnation. Let's read verse 1 again and add to it verse number 2. It says here, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? Now, notice this. Paul is just as shocked by the Corinthian attitude concerning this crisis as he is by the immorality itself. Instead of weeping and mourning at such depravity, they were puffed up and arrogant about it, thinking apparently that it was totally acceptable. Now, one of the difficult interpretive issues here is understanding exactly why the Corinthians were arrogant about this situation. A number of good possibilities have been suggested, like this view from Ciampa and Rossner. It's not unlikely that the incestuous man is of high social standing. A high status would certainly explain the Corinthians' reluctance to confront him over the matter in question. He may have been a benefactor or patron of the church or a group within it. To lose such a person's favor would have been costly in Greco-Roman society where the generosity of such people was of great importance. Paul's firm stance on the matter indicates that in the church, those who are wise, powerful, and of noble birth receive no privileges and are not exempt from discipline if they are immoral. If this view is correct, it has a profound impact on applying this chapter in the modern church. Many terrible sins have been kept hidden or ignored because the person committing them had a high standing in his or her congregation. Perhaps a, a man was a leader, a teacher, or a preacher. And because of his position and clout, he got away with his sinful behavior. The Apostle Paul will have none of that and teaches in other letters that leaders are actually to be held to a higher standard. Now, Paul quickly asserted that the Corinthians should have mourned. They should have been mortified by what was happening. And the immoral man, he says, should have already been put out of their fellowship in verse 2. Now, this expression, put out of your fellowship, is the first in a series of repeated commands that we find throughout the chapter. Paul doesn't really explain yet what it means by put out of your fellowship, but he will soon enough. So, we've seen the crisis, the condemnation, and now once Paul has thoroughly condemned what was going on, he can move to the cure. What do they need to do about it? We begin now in verse 3. For my part, Paul says, even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit, 
as one who is present with you in this way, I've already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul said, I have sufficient knowledge of what's going on. I understand this situation well enough to know from my trustworthy sources that this is the action which must be taken. So he outlines the crisis. He declares his condemnation of both the Corinthian attitude and the sexually immoral man. And then he supplies the remedy beginning in verse number four. And beginning in verse number four, here's what we learn. When a child of God is living like a child of the devil by engaging in ongoing, unrepentant immorality, his or her fellowship with God is broken. And this is important to emphasize. Paul was dealing with a situation everyone knew to be wrong, even the pagans. This fornicator was in clear rebellion against Christ, and evidently he had refused to change. Paul's not dealing with one who made a mistake in weakness, as all Christians do. So because of the seriousness of this rebellion, an equally serious response from the congregation was required. Paul's message in verses 4 and 5 can be summed up basically as saying, if rebellious Christians want to live for the devil, then give them to the devil. The apostle said that his judgment was in the name of the Lord Jesus and that the congregation was to assemble with the power of our Lord Jesus to take action. Christ himself was behind the disciplinary measure the congregation needed to take, emphasizing the gravity of their circumstances. Now, what were they to do when they assembled together to deal with this matter? They were to hand him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Now, let's consider two questions about this statement. First, what does it mean to hand this immoral man over to Satan? And then second, what is the ultimate goal of an action like this? Now, this is not the only time that Paul mentions giving someone to Satan. When he was encouraging Timothy to fight the good fight, in opposition to the many false teachers that were troubling the churches around Ephesus, he gave this warning in 1 Timothy 1 and verse 20. By rejecting conscience, certain persons have suffered shipwreck in the faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have turned over to Satan so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. Fee says that this language was thus quintessential for some kind of expulsion from the Christian community. And he goes on to explain what that meant. In contrast to the gathered community of believers who experience the spirit and power of the Lord Jesus and edifying gifts and loving concern for one another, this man is to be put back out into the world where Satan and his principalities and powers still hold 
sway. Now, this action, as extreme as it might sound, was not punitive. It was not meant just to punish for the sake of punishment. The goal is twofold. The primary purpose of this action is so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. The ultimate aim of this discipline was the redemption of the rebellious Christian through a loving rebuke by depriving the immoral member of the rights granted through fellowship with Christ, he will learn what it means to be separated from the Lord. This kind of discipline is redemptive. It is not punitive. Christians are not about just punishing people for the sake of them being punished. It is redemptive. The second goal, of course, is to maintain the purity of the congregation. And that's what this warning is in the following paragraph. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. Be who God made you to be. So there were two dangers in allowing this rebellious Christian to remain in the congregation's fellowship. One, of course, is that just as leaven permeates dough and spreads its influence throughout, so too can tolerated sin spread one to another because of the close relationships that ought to exist among believers. And two, a congregation which Paul has earlier called the temple of God in chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, is defiled by allowing this kind of immorality to remain. And Paul says when that happens, the temple becomes condemned by God because it's no longer a holy place. The apostle's argument should make this kind of discipline one of the highest priorities of any congregation. The Jews, of course, in anticipation of Passover, had to scour their houses for leaven. There was to be none left that could defile their dwelling places. And if a congregation fails to discipline its rebellious members, it is likewise defiled. Now, Paul declared that this should never be the case. We ought to keep the festival with Christ as our Passover, not the way we used to live with malice and wickedness, but the way we're supposed to live with sincerity and truth. Since Levin is used here to sort of illustrate the effects of sin. Paul reminds the Corinthians that Christ's sacrifice has made us unleavened. He's cleansed us from all sin. And so Paul's exhortation is, live as you are. Live the way Jesus has made you to be. This is a constant theme throughout 1 Corinthians to remind the Christians of who they are now that they belong to Christ. And if that's who they truly are, then they need to live like it, to live in light of the new creation that comes as a result of the crucified and risen Messiah. So the crisis has been exposed. Paul has made his condemnation clear. He's outlined now what they need to do and why this cure is essential. And when we get to the last paragraph, we're going to see Paul broaden the scope of this lesson beyond that specific problem at Corinth to give some general guidelines or criteria 
about how to handle these kinds of situations going forward. Let's read now verses 9 through 11. He says, I want you, uh, excuse me, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave the world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. At the beginning here, when Paul made reference to his letter, it could be that he's referring to a previous letter that he had written to the Corinthians, which was not preserved for whatever reason, uh, or he just might be referring to what he wrote in the first section of this chapter. I just wrote in my letter, and he is now expanding and explaining further about the things that he wrote in verses 1 through 8. In verse 2, he already said that the Corinthians should have removed the immoral man from their fellowship. So he's already stated they should have done that. They didn't need Paul to write them this letter in order for them to know that's where they were that's what they were supposed to do. But instead, they were proud and puffed up and arrogant and on and on and on. But now he comes to the end and he's going to elaborate to say it's not just this situation. There are other situations where this kind of discipline will be necessary. For example, you might pick up 1 Corinthians 5 and just read those first eight verses, and you might conclude, well, if this is true, then Christians can't have anything to do with the unbelievers of the world because they're living in rebellion against Christ. They're committing acts of immorality. So what about that? Paul clarifies. He says, that's not what I'm talking about here. Uh, if In order to do that, you'd have to leave the world entirely. That's not the issue. Additionally, other people could read verses 1 through 8 of this chapter, and they might conclude, okay, well, this kind of discipline that Paul is talking about is only necessary in the specific kind of case that involves sexual immorality, a really extreme case of sexual immorality, if there are extremities to the sin of sexual immorality, and I'm not sure that there are. Um, and so maybe only for sexually immoral Christians are these instructions applied? Paul's saying, no, 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 that's not what I'm saying either, because these kinds of things could be applied to people who are greedy, people who are idolaters, people who slander and revile others, Christians who give over to intoxication, or people who are swindlers. So he clarifies that there are all kinds and categories of sinful behavior that this instruction would apply to, that these criteria that Paul is giving could have some bearing on. Now, in this paragraph, Paul gives, I think, the clearest statement about what exactly this discipline is supposed to look like. What does it mean to put someone out of the fellowship of the congregation? What does that mean? Paul says twice what that means. Do not associate with the rebellious Christians. The Greek word here means to mingle, keep company with, some translations say. It describes kind of a social intimacy, fraternal, friendly activities together. 
That's the idea that Paul is outlining here. And so he has now repeatedly and emphatically outlined what congregations are supposed to do when a child of God is living an openly sinful life, living like a child of the devil. Here he he has, Uh, here it is in in a list form. Verse two, put them out of your fellowship. Verse five, hand them over to Satan. Verse seven, get rid of the old yeast. Verse nine, don't associate with them. Verse 11, don't associate, don't even eat with such people. And the reason this is emphasized is because in the ancient world, and it's like this in many cultures still today, eating with someone is seen as a sign of of camaraderie, of fellowship, of friendship. In the ancient world, scholars identify this idea as table fellowship. This is why Jesus got in so much trouble with the scribes and Pharisees when he would eat with tax collectors and sinners. They saw that as Jesus accepting the lifestyle these people were living, endorsing their behavior and extending fellowship to them. And of course, Jesus' response to that was to say, I didn't come to save the sick. Uh, I came to save the lost, to seek and save that which is lost. A healthy person doesn't need a physician. A sick person does. And those are the people that I'm going to minister to. But that's that's illustrative of what eating with someone meant in that culture. It was a sign of fellowship. And Paul is saying, don't even extend to these individuals that token of fellowship. Don't even eat with them. And then finally in verse 13, which we'll read in just a moment, he says, expel the wicked person from among you. Now, this is an incredibly difficult passage, not necessarily in understanding the teaching as it applied to the Corinthians, but how it might apply in our day. Obviously, it's distressful for any Christian to think that he or she might have to say to a fellow believer, I'm sorry, I can't socialize with you anymore. I have to withdraw from you my fellowship because of the kind of rebellious life that you are living. And obviously, this is a something that we do at the end of a, a long line of rebuking and instructing and admonishing and pleading to try to bring repentance about in the life of the believer. And only once those things have been exhausted do we say we can't ignore 1 Corinthians 5 any longer? And it may be time that this is the solution to the current situation. Now, of course, if we really love those people who are living in that way, we have to remember that love doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, it rejoices in the truth. Paul will write that later in this letter in 1 Corinthians 13, 6. So church discipline has its place in the function of every congregation to keep God's temple pure, to remove those wicked influences from the body, and most importantly, to admonish the sinner to make necessary life changes that would restore his or her relationship with God and his people. So Paul concludes his discussion with these final remarks in verses 12 and 13. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church. Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those people outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. The church is the redeemed of God. 
It's made up of those who have taken their stand with the risen and reigning King Jesus. Christians have committed their lives to serving God and to doing their very best to relentlessly pursue his will, not with perfection, certainly with flaw and mistake, but with as much effort as is possible for each of us. But when Christians rebel, they need to be corrected. That's not something we just ignore. Paul emphasizes again that this correction is not for outsiders. What they need is the message of the cross. What they need is the new creation that comes through becoming a believer and a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. But those who have done that and are in the body of Christ are held to a kind of standard that insists on holiness and growth and maturity. Right here at the very end of the discussion, Paul uses an expression that's found six times in the book of Deuteronomy, expel or drive out the wicked person from among you. Deuteronomy 13, 5, 17, 7, 19, 19, 21, 21, 22, 21, and 24, 7. We know from the book of Deuteronomy that Moses was really concerned about pagan influence and how that influence could lead the Israelites into violating their covenant with Yahweh and worshiping idols. Paul is drawing on that concern and he's insisting that such behavior cannot be tolerated in the new temple of God. But this chapter is undoubtedly one of the most difficult to apply because of the strong emotions it conjures within us. And so as we approach a text like this, with trepidation and care and concern, we ought to pray. We ought to pray that we will remember that the Lord's way, however difficult it is, is the right way and the best way and that we will do everything we can as much as is within us to implement the word of God more fully in all that we do with care, with concern, with love and affection, especially for those who have named the name of Christ and have gone back into living their former life of sin. So may God give us grace as we try our very best to live out his will. Thank you for joining me in this study, and we'll continue through 1 Corinthians in our next lesson. God bless you, and goodbye for now.